HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This is Meant to be Eaten, a Gastronomica podcast on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Krishnandu Ray. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, and our new issue, Volume 21.2, features articles on commensality and creative collaboration, the politics of food systems, and race and representation. My guests today are Alison Hope Alcon, who is Professor of Sociology at University of the Pacific where she writes and teaches about the ways food intersects with race, health, and the environment. She is co-editor, most recently, of A Recipe for Gentrification, Food, Power, and Resistance in the City, published by NYU Press 2020. My other guest is Rafi Grossglick, who is a lecturer in sociology and anthropology at Beit Barrel College and Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, in Israel, and previously he was a visiting assistant professor at UC Davis and has taught about food society and globalization at a number of universities, including Brandeis, Boston, and Tufts. So, hey, thank you, Allison and Rafi, for joining us. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much for having us. Thank you, Krishnando. Hey, Rafi, you are in Israel now. What time is it? It's uh, 10, 10 p.m. Oh, sorry to keep you up late. No, uh, my pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Okay, so let's uh, kind of dive uh, right into the article we are here to discuss. It is called uh, Eating, Parenthetically with the Other, Race in American Food Television. So um, I must confess that I was a little hesitant to read it because I was worried that you will scold me for enjoying television especially food television, because let's face it, there's very little discussion of pleasure in sociology. If there is, it is usually turned into someone's suffering. So I want to open up with this question. Am I being unfair to sociology in posing that question? Allison? Uh, no, I mean, I think that's, I think that's accurate. Um, 
yeah, sociologists tend to be a little bit more focused on kind of trying to understand social problems. And so we start with things that are less pleasant um, and tend to be very critical of popular culture. Although in, in a lot of the interdisciplinary fields, there's there's some celebration of cultural production, um, in especially in ways that kind of show that, you know, that popular culture has the potential to move in more progressive directions. Excellent. Rafi, do you want to add something to it? Well, yes, I, I, I agree with, with Alison and with you, but I, I would just put it a little bit differently because I think that pleasure and suffering are relational and normative terms. Because, for instance, reading a good critical sociology or reading anything that opens one's eye or bring or being engaged with social change are definitely not practices that necessarily make one suffer. On the contrary, they can be, a, a, they can provide a lot of pleasure. So the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu mentioned that sociology is a science that makes trouble. And thus trouble in the sense of critique can be both important and enjoyable. But I, I do think that, 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 it is, it is important to explore pleasure from anthropological and sociological perspective, but in an analytical way, because pleasure is both a, drive, a driving force for countless of important and constructive social relations on the micro-social level, for example, and also because it is a driving force of more complex and problematic process, such as consumer capitalism or power relations in society. So, yes, I, I can understand, Krishnando, why you hesitated before reading the article, and I hope we were able to, to present a complex and critical analytical perspective. It was, and in fact, I, very, very well put. It was, in fact, quite pleasurable. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yep. So uh, uh, let's dive into it a little bit in terms of methodologically. So let me first ask, um, how did this project develop between the two of you collaboratively? Rafi, do you want to kind of uh, start off, uh, start us off on that? Well, I, actually, the fact is that I gave a lecture at, at uh, Allison's class. And so maybe, Ali, you, would you like to continue from that point? Because Things started, I think, after a guest lecture that I gave in your class. Sure. So I teach an upper division undergraduate food, culture, and society class. Um, and uh, Ravi was a, was a visiting professor at Davis and, and came down. I teach in Stockton, which is about 45 minutes away, came down and, uh, and was speaking about his work on MasterChef Israel. And my students were very interested in food television, especially that semester. Um, and I had a lot less experience with food television than they did. Um, but I gave them an open-ended research project at the end of the semester. And two really good students um, wanted to look at how race was portrayed in American food television. And they started looking through the literature for articles and they told me they couldn't find anything. And I was like, oh, that has to be wrong. And then I looked and, you know, there were lots of things that were kind of adjacent to talking about race and food television, uh, but not something that seemed to really fit that space. And of course, um, there are some pieces that have come out since then. I know in the article, we talk about some of the chapters in uh, Dethroning the Deceitful Pork Shop. Um, Kimberly Nettles, who's one of my dissertation committee members. So I'm, I'm especially partial to her 
work. Um, and Jessica Kenyatta Taylor all both have uh, chapters in there that look at race and food television. But when we first started writing this piece, there wasn't really anything in that space. And so we were like, oh, let's uh, let's work on this. Um, Rafi knew something about, you know, quite a bit about content analysis and had experience with that kind of methodology. I've been writing about food and race for a long time now. And so this seemed like a really nice overlap between what we knew and what we could do. That's lovely. That's something... Uh, so productive comes out of a visiting lecture. Um, so I have to con- congratulate you on that. Um, so let me let me uh, get into the article. You know, most of our audience would not have read it. This has just come out uh, yesterday, and uh, hopefully some of them um, will read it in the near future. Uh, you open uh, with an off-sided epigraph from Bell Hooks. I quote: uh, "Within commodity culture, ethnicity becomes spice seasoning that can liven up." the dull dish that is mainstream white culture, end quote. But about a page later, uh, you cite bell hooks again and saying this, I quote again, contact with the other, meaning connection rooted in the longing for pleasure that can act as a critical intervention, challenging and subverting racist domination, inviting and enabling critical resistance, end quote. And this is what you characterize uh, through the whole article. You develop this point as eating with the other. And this kind of beautiful framing, in fact, got me uh, hooked, uh, so to say. In fact, uh, that's a through line where uh, I came to read your article as a dialectic, uh, if you will, between eating the other and eating with the other. And I think it's a terrific way to organize uh, the discussion. So now, Rafi... Uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit, A, about the shows you analyze, and B, how do you go about it? A little bit on method. Yes, of course. So basically, our research is comprised of 15 episodes, nine episodes of, uh, well, it's six episodes of Marcus Samuelson's uh, show, uh, No Passport Required, and nine episodes of Anthony Bourdain's various show and and basically we have six cities that depicted in these shows and two celebrity hosts Anthony Bourdain and Marcus Samuelson so uh, the, I, I must say from from the beginning if we talk about methodology so it is important to say that we took these shows as a cultural texts and we used an interpretive perspective. So we did not examine how these programs were received or deciphered by viewers, but we did try to examine what social elements they resonate with. And the process itself starts with transcriptions. So it's a very meticulous uh, uh, transcription. We transcribed the content of each episode in detail, including reading closely the language used by the hosts and the people they profile in the shows. And we needed to pay careful attention to every possible detail in order to find both explicit and implicit messages of, of, of the show, uh, in, in, in this show. So we, fir- we first we paid attention, of course, to the depictions of the dishes and the cooks 
and the spoken monologues and dialogues, but also to all visual and auditorial uh, aspects in, in the show. So we could identify and interpret the structure of the show. Next, we conducted a, what, what is known as a thematic analysis, in which all of these elements in the episodes, the televised uh, techniques, the soundtrack, the cooking procedures, eating practices, narratives, contextual data, biographical information on the participants in the show and uh, uh, of the hosts were all coded and analyzed. And now, of course, this process shed light on a lot of themes in these programs, gender, poverty, um, many, many aspects. So we had to make a decision on what to focus. And we decided that the most prominent, the most interesting, and the most important themes are those related to race and marginalized communities. And that's the way that we developed the analysis. Excellent. Hey, uh, uh, Alison, uh, mm -hmm. why, why did you pick these two guys? So I think part of it was that uh, No Passport Required had just come out at the moment that we started writing. Indeed, at, in the summer that we were doing the preliminary content analysis, the episodes were coming live, in like in real time. So there were a few out when we started, and then by the time we were ready for more, they were just being released. Um, and the truth is, for me personally, like I'm, I like food TV especially these travelogue shows, but I'm not super well-versed in them. So I was excited about Marcus Samuelson coming out as a host because he was, as far as I knew, uh, one of the first uh, people of color to host one of these shows. And I wanted to see how that would kind of change the dynamic of how these shows were incorporated. Um, of course, there have been, you know, a few kind of simultaneously, uh, Sami Nostrat has a show on Netflix, David Chang has a show on, you know, has multiple shows on Netflix now. Um, and, uh, but, and then it seemed when I watched it, it seemed so parallel to Anthony Bourdain's shows um, and in some ways very modeled after them. Um, and so we decided that that would make kind of a nice comparison. And especially because Marco Samuelson closes his first show with a quote from Anthony Bourdain that, that we also start the article with. Um, that's about like the ability of food to, to allow you to walk in somebody else's shoes um, and how that will kind of be a plus for everybody. And so we kind of realized that there were resonances between the two shows that would allow us to see the effect of um, having a host that's a person of color and in many more ways a cultural insider to the communities he's studying uh, versus somebody who's who literally calls one of his shows parts unknown. He's like the intrepid explorer going out to to translate and digest things that he assumes his visit his uh, viewers are unfamiliar with. And so, what are the six cities, uh, Rafi? So it was. I mean, we followed the um, uh, no passport required the the Samuelson's show, and it was Detroit, New Orleans, Chicago. New York, Miami, and Washington, D.C., and in each, in each city it was different community that was depicted, and then we compared it to the shows which with the same cities that depicted in Bourdain's uh, different shows, so it's um, um, Parts Unknown and No Reservations. So that was the comparison. 
And, and I must add, just to, to mention that, you know, you asked us, Krishnado, how, did, how, how you pick those two guys. I mean, and it's very important to mention that we are talking not about the persons. And we didn't pick um, Samuelson or Bourdain. We talked about not the persons, but the personas. And this is something that is very important to emphasize. It's, it's what they, they show of themselves in these uh, programs. Lovely. And so uh, then you have this uh, digging in deeper into uh, both these personas. Uh, you have this really sharp analysis uh, of Bourdain uh, in his show. Mm, and a, a couple of arguments you make. One is his uninterrogated whiteness uh, and his uh, masculine swagger, but which is also countercultural. Mm, so, and I must say, I have to confess, I fell for it. Uh, so in, my question is, what makes us fall for Bourdain and what are your critiques uh, of uh, some of these unstated presumptions of Bourdain's persona in, in many of his programs? So maybe Alison first. Sure. Um, I mean, because I fall for it, too. Um, I, I even I mean, I grew up in, New, in suburban New Jersey and so did Anthony Bourdain. And so there's this way that he feels very or his persona, right, feels very familiar to me. Um, and I also, you know, uh, read a lot of these like kind of countercultural texts and was really infatuated with them when I was in college and, and sometimes still. Um, and so he, you know, I like to I like to believe in that had I ever gotten to meet him, we would have gotten along very well. And of course, who knows if that's true or not, but it's that fantasy, right? He seems accessible. He seems like you could be the person he's eating a meal with in, in these various parts of the world. Um, And I don't necessarily think that uh, it's not so much that his whiteness is something that I think is a negative so much as I think that whiteness so often functions as this like unmarked cultural capital unmarked cultural category. Um, Ruth Frankenberg, who was a scholar who wrote about whiteness in the 90s, uh, used to describe it as the non-experienced of not being slapped in the face, right? I'm going to say that again because it's Mm -hmm. complicated, the non-experience of not being slapped in the face. And so the thing about whiteness, and I'm white, um, is that to understand how whiteness does work in the world, you have to realize that other people are are having the experience of being slapped in the face in a way that you are not. Right. And so there are moments if you if you dive deep into what Bourdain is doing in his persona in the shows, there are various moments where you're like, oh, he couldn't have gotten away with that if it was if he wasn't white. That wouldn't have been charming if he wasn't white. And so I'm thinking particularly like about, you know, he talks explicitly about how much he likes to drink and do drugs. Um, there are, especially in the Miami episode, there are so many references to cocaine, it wasn't even worth counting them. Um, but, and I think, you know, a person of color would have had a much tougher time selling that as charming, as opposed to being worried that people would judge them negatively, right? But B- Bourdain's persona is one in which he can kind of be seen as uh, as countercultural and kind of re- rebellious in that way. Um, and then also the the texts that he really likes to talk about, the authors that he really likes to portray. Um, so we get the examples of, you know, William Burroughs and Morocco and Graham Greene and Haiti. 
and Joseph Conrad got probably the epitome of it in the Congo. Um, and to a in a different way, he ta- he does the same thing in some of these, you know, by who he quotes and how he talks about things in the American cities that we profile. But of course, you know, the persona we see him having in the Detroit episode or the New Orleans episode is the same persona he has in all his international travels. So there's that kind of blending of it. Um, but yeah, I think yeah. our... Go ahead. I think our point generally was just that, like, his whiteness matters in terms of who he is in these shows, in terms of his ability to kind of go out into all these communities and really translate them in ways that, I'm so sorry about that, to go out into all these communities and translate them in ways that, uh, that become intelligible to the viewers that he's seeking to connect to. Excellent. Rafi, uh, uh, you write how Bourdain's guides are, in fact, often white. Uh, though I have kind of watched enough Bourdain, I didn't realize until I read your article uh, that rarely local people of color. And you give a terrific example, uh, celebrity chefs such as, say, John Besh or Emerald Lagasse in New Orleans. Uh, is it any different uh, in uh, Samuelson's show? Yes, it is different. And in fact, that point seems to be one of, I think, the key ideas of Samuelson's uh, show. So, for example, the synopsis of the show, it, it reads something in the lines of, the show offers viewers a culinary and anthropological exploration of people, rituals, and food of multicultural America. And that was a quote from, from, from the synopsis of the show. And indeed, Samuelson seems to be really uh, interacting not only with cultural mediators or cultural commentators or culinary experts, but with allegedly informants. I mean, people that, that are the, the explorer or the anthropologist meet in the field and gets information from, just like any, uh, any other uh, anthropological research. So we can see Samuelson in his show mostly with people of color, with people from marginalized communities, including home cooks, professional but not celebrity chefs, uh, ordinary people, quote-unquote, and, and as well as depictions of Samuelson's meeting with cooks and, and food purveyors, not only in the professional spheres, in restaurants, shops, etc., et but also, and this is part of the format itself, in the domestic sphere, in their home, kitchen, in their family, kitchens, etc. Okay, and, we are going to do quite different. Excellent. We are going to take a short break uh, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. My name is Samantha Garner and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously just like they do in Wisconsin. Cheeselandia is a community for loud and proud cheese lovers brought to life by Wisconsin Cheese. I know that I can always cook amazing food with their cheese and it's even good enough just to snack on. As a Cheeselandia member, I know there is always a supportive community behind me who always gets as excited as I do about cheese. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Check us out on Instagram at Cheeselandia. And we are back. This is Meant to be Eaten with Krishnandu Ray talking to Alison Hope Alcon and Rafi Grosklik. 
about their article, Eating with the Other, Race in American uh, Food Television, available in the current issue of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. And uh, when we uh, went for the break, we were talking about Marcus Samuelson's uh, show. And Rafi, you were talking about it. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, and there's something positive about him, that he, in fact, goes to local people of color, uh, in the hospitality setting, at at home, a lot more than, say, in Anthony Bourdain's uh, uh, programming. But you guys are not uh, easy on Marcus Samuelson either. You make a very subtle and compelling point that he, in fact, foregrounds his immigrant and hybrid nature, but rarely his blackness. Uh, that was startling to me when I read your article. He's, he, you say he's always referencing Ethiopia, Sweden, and America, but almost never his blackness. Would you want to elaborate on that a little? Yeah, this was one of the things when I watched the first couple of episodes on the show I, that I was really struck by. And some of it is because I was, some of it may be like an, a bias in my own kind of analytic path in that I was interested in the show because of uh, him being a black man hosting the show. Um, but he went, the first two cities that come out, um, the first two episodes that come out were Detroit and New Orleans. And so those were the first two that I watched. And these are cities with really, you know, significant, not only black populations, but black cultural kind of legacies um, and, and strong black communities now. And the lack of talking about blackness, either his own or really the, the blackness of these cities was really striking. Um, there's one episode or there's one interview, sorry, in Detroit where he talks to a woman who's part of the Arab immigrant community, which is the community that he's profiling. And she is running a cafe with, in what I believe is the Cass Corridor, which is a, you know, this historically black and kind of becoming revitalized part of Detroit. Her business partners are both black. And she talks about how she sees her, her intervention as important because of the need for black ownership and black presence in Detroit. And you see the two black partners kind of wave in the background and then he moves on to something else. And then in New Orleans, he talks to Leah Chase uh, from Dookie Chase's, you know, a very eminent uh, black chef, probably in some ways the epitome of New Orleans black restaurant cuisine, um, and asks her about her take on the Vietnamese committee, uh, community that he is profiling um, and doesn't at all talk about, you know, what are the relationships between these new immigrant communities and the longstanding Black community? And in the later episodes where he's talking to Black immigrant communities, the Haitian community in Miami and the Ethiopian community in Washington, D.C., he doesn't talk at all about the relationship between uh, Black, you know, American Black communities and immigrant Black communities. Uh, that's in no way a part of his analysis. Um and I, it just seems so striking to me, especially because I haven't read his entire memoir, but I know that there's parts of Yes Chef, which is his book, where he talks about being regarded as the Black chef. Um, and so the way that Blackness has kind of uh, functioned in his own career, um, and in some ways he feels like it's held him back or forced him to be stereotyped, um, 
But on the other hand, I want to re- I want to refer back to what Rafi was saying a little while ago about persona and thinking about how, you know, Marcus Samuelson has had to be very strategic about how he deploys different parts of his identity. And so it's less to be like, oh, he did this and he should have done that. And it's more to be like, well, let's look at the strategy he's chosen and the work it does in the world um, and how it makes certain things much more legible in terms of his ability to think about immigration. And particularly since the show came out, you know, in the middle of the Trump administration and at the height of this very kind of anti-immigrant moment. Right. So it was certainly doing explicit political work by positively profiling immigrant communities. But by foregrounding that aspect of his identity, he chooses not to talk about his black identity. And, you know, two years later, um, not that Black Lives Matter hasn't been functioning all along, but we're kind of in a moment where the where the dominant trope about thinking about race right now is thinking about Black Lives Matter. And so it it just seems very jarring that he couldn't blend those things together. Yep. Fantastic. In the next section, in fact, you switch to uh, uh, what what you have called eating with the other. Uh, and you, in fact, show that Bourdain, in fact, is quite inclusive and respectful, which is one of the things that's attractive about his program. And you quote a tweet uh, by, I think, Jenny Yang and another by Rania Abuzaid. Uh, uh, Rafi, uh, could you read them out uh, to us if you have the article in front of you for our audience? Uh, and, yes, and, sure. Yeah. Uh, so yes, I, I would read it. I, I will. I will try to elaborate a little bit on on, on this this quote. So uh, it, it was a popular tweet that was posted by the Asian American comedian Jen Yang, and it reads: "Bourdain never treated our food like he discovered it. He kicked it with grandma because he knew that he was the one that needed to catch up on our brilliance." And uh, journalist uh, Rania Abuzaid, she added, um, his, his wasn't the oriental gaze. He saw humanity and food everywhere and connected with it. So again, I think that we brought these quotes to, to the article, not to say anything about Bourdain, the person, but about Bourdain, the persona. And just like uh, Alison just mentioned, and about the theme that is expressed in the show, a theme that we called eating with the other, that is an explicit depiction of respect and enthusiasm that both Bourdain and Samuelson express uh, for everyone they, they meet and for every dish they, they were served. And we, we try to think what is the meaning of this depiction of eating with the other, how it is portrayed and what it represents. And, and uh, Alison, uh, you call out Bourdain's, uh, uh, I think what you call, uh, say, uh, low-grade misogyny. Uh, what do you mean by that? And how do you reconcile his support for the, quite sub- strong support for the Me Too movement? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think you could view it in a variety of ways. So one is to think about him kind of evolving as a person over time and learning as we all are that certain things we kind of thought were normal uh, and didn't question could be questioned and changed. And so they'll kind of what I call the low grade misogyny of his language. Um, 
you know, are things that maybe he decided not to use anymore. I don't really know that, but I do think that it's also possible to kind of engage in these kind of low-grade misogynistic practices while at the same time being very supportive of a feminist moment or movement on the other hand. And, you know, not everyone who's involved in social movement work really does the kind of internal work of, of connecting it to their own everyday speech and practice. Um, and so whether Bourdain kind of had a change of heart about the low-grade misogyny or uh, whether he kind of was able to somehow reconcile it with the explicit political support for the Me Too movement is not something that I, you know, know him in any way. Like, it's not something I can uh, intuit from what I see publicly. Um, but it does seem to be worth mentioning that there is something very very masculine about his performance, right? That kind of explore going out into the world, countercultural vibe, you know, the black leather jacket, the hard drinking, the cocaine use, right? It's very manly in a very kind of heteronormative, uh, hegemonic way. And at the same time, that didn't stop him from, uh, from knowing and understanding that, you know, that, the kind of, especially the kind of really explicit, like, uh, so like so derogatory sexism that uh, that his partner at the time, Asia Argento, was uh, was experiencing and had experienced from Harvey Weinberg. Like, you don't have to understand feminism in, in its kind of micropolitics in every part of your life to understand that 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 is wrong and you should say something about it. But he did also seem willing to kind of go back to his earlier work and say like, oh, here's some of the ways that if you look through Kitchen Confidential, for example, his like earliest book about how uh, he how he kind of talked and acted and portrayed himself in the culinary world, that maybe some of those, there, maybe there was something problematic about that. So, um, uh I'm sorry that we are running out of time. This is kind of absolutely fascinating. I, let, let's end with this one question. <clears throat> Have you guys watched uh, Padma Lakshmi's uh, Taste of the Nation? And what do you think of it? Like, how does it compare um, to no passport required or to say no uh, reservations? Rafi, you want to go first? Well, uh, yes, yeah, sure. But unfortunately, I did not get to, to watch it, at least not in a systematic and analytical way as we did in the other shows. But from what I, I have heard, I've read and heard, it seems very interesting. And I think that this program can be used as an extension and comparison to, comparison to the current article. As I mentioned previously, there are a lot of themes in, in, in these shows. So I think that especially in terms of gender and maybe nationalism, uh, this new show, the the Taste of the Nation, might be interesting. Allison, any thoughts on it? I was going to say exactly the same thing. I also have not seen it, um, even though I, it does seem really fascinating. So I, I should check it out. But um, the the if we were going to do some kind of follow up article to it, the ability to bring in the gendered component would be really interesting. And then also the fact that she is, um, you know, she's a uh, she's from India as opposed to from Ethiopia. So she reads as South Asian rather than as black. Um, and so also thinking about the kind of racial distinctions um, and the ways that that kind of translates into the kind of persona that each of these chefs can create. 
in the in the kind of visual world of of television um, might be a really interesting way to keep this analysis going. Yeah, I think in fact that's we can leave the audience with it. Maybe the audience gets to write that article uh, uh, in engaging with you. So uh, thank you, Allison, and thank you, Rafi, for joining us. Uh, listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, uh, volume 21.2, that just came out May 2021. Uh, for more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us next week for a special episode on what to read now. Thank you. This is Krishnandu Ray. Meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.